The following sermon podcast is a glimpse into the community of Central Bible Church, where we strive to welcome everyone into Jesus' life. We hope that you can join us for this Sunday service as we gather together seeking to live in and for Christ. saw me try to come up before him, it's because I was really eager to read the passage to you today. So I'm going to read Psalm 27 for you this morning, and I encourage you this every week, but I really encourage you to just listen this morning. Um, The words of David in this psalm are just so beautiful and paint such a vivid picture of his relationship with, with the Lord. So Psalm 27 a psalm of David. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evil men advance against me to devour my flesh, when my enemies and my foes attack me, they will stumble and fall. Though an army besiege me, My heart will not fear. Though war break out against me, even then will I be confident. One thing I ask of the Lord, this is what I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. For in the day of trouble, he will keep me safe in his dwelling. He will hide me in the shelter of his tabernacle and set me high upon the rock. Then my head will be exalted above the enemies who surround me. At his tabernacle will I sacrifice with shouts of joy. I will sing and make music to the Lord. Hear my voice when I call, O Lord. Be merciful to me and answer me. My heart says of you, seek his face. Your face, Lord, I will seek. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You have been my helper. Do not reject me or forsake me, O God, my Savior. Though my father and mother forsake me, the Lord will receive me. Teach me your way, O Lord. Lead me in a straight path because of my oppressors. Do not turn me over to the desire of my foes, for false witnesses rise up against me, breathing out violence. I am still confident of this. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Good morning. How are we? I am tired. We had a baby last week, so sleep is low. I'm going to pray for God's help. 
do this. Jesus, we love you. We thank you for your grace. We thank you that um, your word never returns void. I ask now that you would, um, through the power of your spirit, help us to hear these words that you've spoken to us through um, your child, David, um, that we would seek you and run hard after you the way that he talks about in this psalm. We love you. Amen. Uh, At the beginning of 2013, I was meeting with a mentor of mine in a coffee shop in southeast Portland. I was lamenting to him about my current job as a barista in my seventh year of employment at the nationwide juggernaut of coffee we in the Pacific Northwest have come to despise. (laughs) Starbucks. Unless you buy coffee from Costco, then you don't despise Starbucks. Starbucks is top shelf for you. Sorry, Mark. Anyways, I was venting frustrations about feeling uneasy about continuing on at the company. Starbucks was good to me through many years of my schooling, my undergrad and community college, but I had graduated just a couple of years earlier, and I felt like I needed to do something else. I got my undergrad degree at Multnomah in pastoral ministry, but didn't feel like I was ready to jump into full-time vocational ministry. I wanted to continue Uh, training in pastoral work and do internships before diving in the deep end. And as my mentor listened to me, I could see he had something on his mind. He was a very expressive man. Do you have any trade skills? I thought for a moment. Um, I cleaned windows for a couple years in California before I went up here for school after high school. Were you any good at it? I thought for a moment. Yeah, I think I was pretty good. I've been saying someone should start a window cleaning business. Okay. I started feeling a little unsure. I said, I've never thought of starting a business. Isn't that pretty hard to do? Don't you need insurance and money to get things going? He looked at me and he said, listen to me. If you show up on time, you don't constantly raise and lower your prices, and you always answer your phone, you'll do better than 90% of the guys out there. I said, really? At this point, he called over the, the coffee shop's owner, who he knew because he frequented that coffee shop. Mike, do you guys have a window cleaner? No joke. I promise you I'm not making this up. Because I hear stories like this sometimes in sermons, and I'm like, that sounds like somebody made that up. I promise you, this is real. Mike said this, well, we did, but his price always changed. Then he wouldn't show up, and I could never get a hold of him. (laughs) And then my mentor just did this. I said, okay, I better give this a shot. That coffee shop we met in was my first job. That summer, I started my little little window cleaning business. I transitioned out of Starbucks and went for it. Now, before I go on, hear me. Owning a business sounds cooler than it actually is. (laughs) 
Yes, there are many cool things about being self-employed, but it's not nearly as glamorous as it sounds. I'm not running Google. I'm cleaning people's windows and removing crap from their gutters by hand. It's not that cool. That said, I never expected myself to own a business. When I, it wasn't even in the framework of what I thought of when I thought about my future. It has been really good and really, really hard. Just before my first winter season hit, I had decided to run a coupon through Living Social to gain exposure and to grow a repeat clientele base. I wouldn't make very much money doing that, but I was getting my name out there. I had so much work from running that deal that that first winter season, I didn't even think about like what the next winter season would be like without running a coupon deal. The following year, I quickly learned how seasonal a service-based business like this was going to be. January and February were brutal. Who wants to spend money right after Christmas? Not very many people. Everyone's too busy paying for gym memberships or personal trainers <laughs> for six weeks. Who wants their windows cleaned in 45-degree, rainy, stormy, Portland weather? Nobody. Very few people. And unless you lived under a giant pine tree, you probably didn't need your gutters cleaned, as most of the leaves would have fallen a few months earlier. And so there I was in my second season, winter season. It's early February. Barely any work is scheduled. I'm stressed out of my mind. I'm barely sleeping. Filled with anxiety. That was year two. And then year three came. And we made it through. And things got a little bit easier. And then year four came. And there was a giant snowstorm that year, which was really hard, but we made it through. <laughs> and then we had this last year. And things got a little bit better than the previous years. So why do I share this all with you? For two, two reasons. One, while I did not foresee owning a business in my future back then, it didn't happen by accident. Yes, I, I feel like I kind of stumbled into it, but I had to allow myself to sit under the wisdom of someone who had lived more life than me. Now, just a quick note. I feel a little uneasy even saying that, because one of my pet peeves personally in sermons is when people do self-congratulatory stories or statements. But it's the best illustration I could come up with. We just had a baby, and I'm really tired, so we'll blame it on that. <laughs> in order to find a way out of the clutches of Starbucks, I had to choose to do something different. Standing back, acknowledging that I needed to do something else, is a totally different thing than standing back, acknowledging I need to do something else, and then actually doing stuff. There have been so many times in my walk with God that I have stood back, recognized that I felt far from God, and then said something like, this sucks, maybe the next sermon I hear will help me. Translation. Maybe there's some sort of truth I haven't yet heard that I need to know before I'll feel closer to God. Then things will change. Then I'll feel better and I'll find hope. You see what happened there? It became about mental assent 
about getting the right facts, instead of the onus being on me to do something, to seek God, I put that responsibility on something else. Sometimes that is how things work. We do get a new truth or understand something in a new way, and that changes us. But often, it is on me, it is on you to act, to do something, to seek him, to be in his presence, and it is there that we begin to find hope in life. Secondly, every fall and winter, running this business has gotten a little easier despite its seasonal nature, but that hasn't happened accidentally. Sure, I've gained clients throughout the years and had marginally more work than the previous year, but it's still really, really tight. I've had to learn to strategize. I've had to send out email blasts with winter specials to plan for vacations in January, which is, you know, everyone's favorite time of the year to be home in Portland, Oregon. Really, though, I've had to choose to try new things, get creative, and so on, but what has probably helped me the most, more than these new strategies and plans, is deliberately sitting still, closing my eyes, and remembering that we did just fine the previous five years. I mean that. I actually sometimes daily have to, to make myself sit down, steady my, my, my mind, close my eyes, and ask God to remind me of what he's already done year over year. I cannot sit around and just simply expect to feel hopeful. I actually have to choose to find hope. I think this is a lot like walking in Jesus' life when we face seasons of difficulty or suffering. We have to seek him, his presence. We have to remember what he's already done. Hope is most often found on purpose, not not on accident. We find life in the midst of difficulty when we choose to intentionally seek the presence of God. Now, I want to be careful here. I'm not saying that you're supposed to muster up hope out of thin air. Just try your hardest. You're supposed to will yourself to to feel better when things are tough. That's not going to work. I'm saying often we have to do before we feel. Often it is in the doing that our heart and our emotions, our feelings, begin to match the actions that we're taking. It is in choosing to pause, to listen, to wait, to pray, to meditate, to hear God in the scriptures, to process with your church family and community group. It's in those things that we begin to find hope and feel encouraged. Hope rarely is going to just happen to you. It's often found in intentional, little, seemingly insignificant daily choices. With that, let's transition to our psalm this morning. Psalm 27. This psalm technically is a poem of lament, which means it's a psalm passionately expressing crying out to Yahweh. 
but even still it has a strong tone of trust in God despite life's circumstances. It's a psalm of King David. It was probably written in his older years after much life experience. Psalm 27 is written in a, it's written in a chiastic pattern, which, it, which means it's bookended by one idea, and then sandwiched in between that is another primary idea. So if you think about it, you've got idea A, then you've got idea B, B1, and idea A1. A, B, B, A. So two ideas. Our psalm begins and ends, it's bookended, with the idea of confidence or hope in God. And, this, and standing in between this confident posture is the idea of seeking God's presence in a way, as a way of realizing that confidence and that hope. So let's look at these first three verses again real quick. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Whom shall I be afraid? When the wicked advance against me to devour me, it is my enemies and my foes who will stumble and fall. Though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. Though war break out against me, even then I will be confident. It's pretty easy to hear David's confidence and hope here. It's interesting, too, because it's a present-future hope. The poem is written as if these things were happening to David presently. But we know that this was probably written after his many battles and wars, and after he was chased by Saul and his men. Yet the psalm says, Though an army besiege me, as if it's happening right now, my heart will not fear. It's as if he's imagining it now, or at least he's recalling the memories of his earlier years when he was in the midst of great difficulty. And he's telling himself, this could happen again. And if it does, I won't be afraid because you brought me through then. And that means I need to trust you now and hope that you will bring me through in the future. I can almost hear David like convincing himself as he's saying these things. It's as if he wrote this poem in a period of, of doubt or discouragement or depression, and he's kind of pumping himself up by remembering the truth of who God is and what he will do. Why should I fear men? The Lord is my light and my salvation. He is my hope. He is my trust. He's my confidence. Who should I be afraid of? God is the stronghold of my life. He's got me. He's never going to let me go. Catastrophe could strike but even death won't have the final say. God is my hope. I think in his later years, David got to the point in his walk with God where he cried out to Yahweh whether he was facing imminent difficulty or not. I think that this is what life experienced will do to a seasoned believer. The more you experience seasons of difficulty or doubt or suffering, the more you begin to recognize whether by your own choosing or God's merciful hand, you need him. It's a cycle of difficulty and hardship followed by trust and hope and confidence in God, followed by another season of difficulty and hardship, followed by more trust and hope, and so on. And I think that after a while, for some of us, the cycle reverses. And instead of trusting God after 
going through the season of difficulty, you begin to trust and find hope in Yahweh before the season even comes. Because you know it's going to happen. An encouragement to us young, passionate, rambunctious folks who are mostly sitting over there. (laughs) There are men and women in this church whose walk with Jesus is twice as long as we've been alive. We need each other. We might be a little bit more hip, more excited, more passionate, but we're also more easily tossed about when life throws a new challenge at us. We're about as stable as the current of a shallow stream, easily moved, easily swayed or stopped by life's challenges, by seasons of doubt and suffering. There are men and women in this body whose trust and confidence in Yahweh is as strong as the current of the Columbia River. Does a tree crashing into the waters of the Columbia change its current dramatically? No. It barely touches it. That is what what walking with Jesus for 30, 40, and 50 years will do. It gives a confidence and a trust that exists even while life often gets more difficult as time goes on. We need to find these men and women and lean into them as we figure things out. We need to see the look of trust on their faces. We need to hear their stories and glean their wisdom. So David has a confidence in God for the hard seasons. And where does he find this confidence and this hope? How does he go about not just saying true things, but actually feeling those truths deep down in his bones? Look at verses 4 through 6 with me and pay attention to the language used to describe the places of God's presence. One thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. For in the day of trouble, he will keep me safe in his dwelling. He will hide me in the shelter of his sacred tent and set me high upon a rock. Then my head will be exalted above the enemies who surround me. At his sacred tent, I will sacrifice with shouts of joy. I will sing and make music to the Lord. What's the one thing that David must do? The one thing that he has to seek? Being close to God. House, temple, dwelling, shelter, tent, all represent places David seeks Yahweh in order to find his confidence and his hope. He's looking to be where God is. Each of these places represent different times and different places that God dwelt among his people. But they all point to this idea. Yahweh actually localized himself in an earthly address. He made himself available to David and to the Israelites in a particular location. And the really amazing thing is that we all know, but was not realized by David until much later in heaven, is that in Jesus bringing the Holy Spirit, God has changed his address one final time. His presence now and forever can be found in you and in me. He resides in us. While God no longer settles himself in a shelter of sorts, I want to pause for just a second and talk about our church building. 
Although the building we find ourselves in isn't special in and of itself, church buildings are important, especially in the Northwest. I was listening to a podcast earlier this week of a, of a really successful, thriving, vibrant church, and the pastor was sharing about a potentially huge opportunity to move into their own building. He was kind of pitching it to the people. It was a vision sermon of sorts. They'd been using another church's space for years, renting it, but they'd recently been approached by a dying church that had a nice, large property and building. Just hearing the churches, that churches in, this, in the city are working together in that way is pretty encouraging. But then the pastor went on to pitch his people on the size and the scope of the building that they could be moving into. And he said things like this, and I'm not, I'm not exaggerating. It has two parking lots, several finished kids' ministry classrooms, adult classrooms. There's a giant 6,000-square-foot basement with an industrial kitchen. It literally sounded like he was describing Central Bible Church. <laughs> he went on to describe all of the potential that that space could have as a place of influence and grace and light in their community. That hit me hard. Guys, as we wait on God and listen to each other this fall, let's start dreaming big together. This space we find ourselves in has so much potential, it's insane. There are so many ways we can use our building to bless our city and build God's kingdom. So let's dream big together, amen? amen. Verses 7 through 12. Hear my voice when I call, Lord. Be merciful to me and answer me. My heart says of you, seek his face. Your face, Lord, I will seek. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You have been my helper. Do not reject me or forsake me, God, my Savior. Though my father and mother forsake me, the Lord will receive me. Teach me your way. Lead me in a straight path because of my oppressors. Do not turn me over to the desire of my foes, for false witnesses rise up against me, spouting malicious accusations. David continues on here, describing his need to be in the presence of God. But now we go from seeking God's house to seeking God's own face. There's an intimacy here that David is desperately chasing after as he wrestles with adversity and hardship. He almost sounds obsessed, doesn't he, about being in Yahweh's presence? Hear my voice. Seek his face. Don't hide your face from me. Don't reject me. Receive me. Teach me your ways. Lead me. While, why, David, why is David so frantically seeking God's presence? Because it is in those moments or seasons of great struggle, adversity, and suffering that drawing close to Yahweh will sustain us. If the presence of God is represented in us through the Holy Spirit, then what must we do to seek him? We must choose to intentionally remember that he's there. We have to become a people who, who intentionally choose to listen to God, who pause, who pray, who seek his wisdom and his peace, who wait 
on the Lord. The man or woman who chooses to acknowledge his presence and seek him will be the person who prays regularly, who pauses to sit quietly, who asks the Holy Spirit to help them in their relationships as they engage in those relationships. It's often in our trials, in our suffering, in difficult seasons, that God, by his mercy, forces us to recognize his presence. Often the more desperate we grow in seasons of difficulty, the more the presence of God becomes essential. We find ourselves in a season as a church family who are desperate to seek God's presence and know what we, have, what we would have for us, what he would have for us. It's a lot easier to recognize our need to seek him when we're discouraged than when things are going well. But I think, honestly, and I think the lead team agrees, the best days of this church are ahead. Let's not forget to continue to pause and meditate and remember and listen and wait on God, even as we begin to experience a season of growth. In the midst of the storm, it can be easy to lose sight of God. But he's near us. We have to fight to acknowledge him. He's as near to us as he was to the disciples on the boat when they were caught in the storm. What did they do? They forgot who was with them. They needed to intentionally choose to remember exactly who was with them on that boat. Jesus was asleep, but Jesus was with them. We've got to fight to do the same thing when we face seasons of change and uncertainty as a church. Remembering the person and character of Jesus, that he is with us. It seems that in this season at CB, God is refining us, and he's kind of been refining us for a while, it feels like. If it is true that God uses seasons of difficulty to shape and grow his people, what should we, as Central Bible Church, what should we make of the last decade at this church? There's been a lot of hard stuff. There's probably many things we could say, but at the very least, two things. God is sovereign, and we are not perfect. There's an element of the difficulty we faced over the last several years that has been God pruning us and shaping us and molding us. There's also an element of that difficulty that has been our own doing. We screw up, we make mistakes. And by we, I don't just mean the leadership, I mean all of us. But in all of the things that have been hard or frustrating or made you feel uneasy or unsure, God wants each person in this family to do what the psalmist so desperately desires, acknowledge his presence regularly, listen to him, seek him. In the pursuit of God, A.W. Tozer writes, it is a solemn thing and no small scandal in the kingdom to see God's children starving while actually seated at the Father's table. So often I live like this. I find myself on the floor searching for scraps of food when if I just looked up, I'd see there's a feast before me. I miss it often. I think I miss it because I don't want to put in the effort of disciplining my heart and my mind to pause, to recognize that he's there. 
to listen to him. Can you imagine what would happen if every person in this room started to get serious about being in the presence of God, being more aware of his presence? What would happen if we chose to remember he is with us in those moments just before an argument with our spouse or with our children or with our pastor or with our coworker or with our in-law? If every person in this room started doing that throughout the day, it would literally change everything. If instead of praying once to start the day, you fought to pray while you drive to community group for your time with your friends at community group, it would make you more aware, more sensitive to others during your time, more patient with them, more loving, more gracious, more kind. See, often this is how God's kingdom is brought about. It's not just by preachers standing up and saying true things and us all nodding and going, that's true. It's by us daily choosing to make small decisions that actually matter, like praying before heading into that conversation that God would help you. By pausing, turning the media off, and listening to God. It's not just by us saying stuff that's true and us all agreeing. We actually have to do stuff. The final couple verses. I remain confident of this. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. So there's that confidence again. I want to end our time this morning by reading an excerpt of an essay by C.S. Lewis. It was called Meditation in a Tool Shed. Listen closely. I was standing today in the dark tool shed. The sun was shining outside, and through the crack at the top of the door came a sunbeam. From where I stood, the beam of light with the specks of dust floating in it, was the most striking thing in the shed. Everything else was almost pitch black. I was seeing the beam, not seeing things by it. Then I moved, so that the beam fell directly in my eyes. Instead of the whole previous picture, instantly the whole previous picture vanished. I saw no tool shed, And above all, I didn't even see the beam. Instead, I saw framed in the irregular cranny at the top of the door, green leaves moving on the branches of a tree outside. And beyond that, some 90-odd million miles away, the sun. Looking along the beam, that is looking directly into the beam, and looking at the beam are two very different things. But this is only a very simple example of the difference between looking at and looking along. A young man meets a girl. The whole world looks different when he sees her. Her voice reminds him of something he has been trying to remember his whole life. And ten minutes casual chat with her is more precious than all the favors that all other women in the world could grant. He is, as they say, in love. Now comes a scientist and describes this young man's experience from the outside. He's looking at the love. 
From him, for him, it is all an affair of the young man's genes and a recognized biological stimulus. That is the difference between looking along the sexual impulse and looking at it. We do not know in advance whether the lover or the psychologist is giving the more correct account of love or whether both accounts are equally correct in different ways or whether they're both equally wrong. We just have to find out. Friends, I believe that God is doing something in the American church right now in the increasingly post-Christian culture, post-church culture we find ourselves in. The Holy Spirit seems to be pushing the American church to remember what actually welcoming everyone into Jesus' life looks like. It starts with praying, meditating, reading God's word, living in honest, open relationships with a small group of others whose bond is like that of a family. It looks like being hospitable, inviting outsiders in for a meal. We've somehow lost these simple disciplines, disciplines as a collective whole in the West. I think many of us are comfortable looking at the Christian life. We can describe it. We can tell you how to best go about it. We even have some good scripture references. We know a lot of true stuff, but very few of us have experienced the God of the Christian life on a regular basis. We've spent too much time looking at the Christian life and assessing whether or not it's true and not enough time experiencing the bliss of looking along the Christian life into the God who is behind it. One commentator writes this, Waiting for God is like standing in the dark but looking along the beam of light that comes from God. Knowing the source of light gives us confidence that outside the darkened sheds that describe our lives or outside the darkened sheds that describe our church, light bathes the whole landscape. Light will not be overcome by the dark, but will vanquish it. It is that kind of vision of God that gives us the courage to wait in confidence. Jesus says in John 8:12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. He is our light. Let's wait well this fall, CB. Let's take the spiritual discipline of seeking and waiting on God seriously this fall. Hope is most often found on purpose, not by accident. We will find life in the midst of difficulty when we choose to intentionally seek the presence of God. Pray with me. Father, we love you. Yahweh, we, we, need, we need to choose to be aware of you. So often, we, we think that things aren't going well, or maybe our perspective is off because there's some sort of fact or truth about you and about the world that we're just not quite getting, and if we just understood it, then we'd be, we'd be in a good spot, and we would feel differently, and our perspective would change, and sometimes that's true, but God, often 
we need to simply pause and remember what you've done. We need to remember that you are there. You are on the boat with us. You are in us. That's where you live now. That's where your address is. It's in each one of our hearts. Would you help us to discipline our hearts and our minds to choose to acknowledge you before we go into that meeting, before we go home, before we have that hard conversation, Lord, would you help us? So often we feel out of control of our emotions and we can't help ourselves. And it's, God, we need to pause. We need to ask for your help. We need to recognize that you are good. Lord, revival comes when your people earnestly, regularly pray. Would you help us to become that kind of people this fall as we wait on you? And we expect you to do beautiful things. We love you. Thank you for loving us. Amen. We desire to be formed by the word of God in community. If you have questions about this week's sermon, we would love to hear from you. For more information about our church, please visit centralbible.church.